Salofalava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up. That's just an incredibly sad day. I believe a vessel with his impact was only just beginning. Tributes pour in from New Zealand's Pacifica leaders for politician for Anana Efeso Collins. Also, they're all doing very well, those sort of what we've got there, and uh, they're very, very cute. An eco centre in the Cook Islands are caring for native birds who've been knocked by cyclones. And later, 40 asylum seekers that arrived in Australia have now been taken to Nauru. A pillar of the Pacific community for Anana Efeso Collins's life is being mourned and his legacy remembered. The 49-year-old Samoan Tokelauan leader and Greens MP has been described by Labour Deputy Leader Kamo Sepuloni as someone who'd embodied the Samoan proverb, Oleala ilepule ole tautua. The pathway to leadership is through service. Following last year's election results, Fa'anana said he was elated and humbled to make it into Parliament. In an interview with Lydia Lewis, he describes that his family was his motivation. It reminded me of what was most important, that I'm going to, we as the adults in the room have to do everything possible to leave behind a planet that is going to survive and sustain the hopes and dreams of my daughters and their friends at school. Fa'anana collapsed while taking part in a charity event in central Auckland. Pacific leaders say Fa'anana was a strong community advocate known for serving the most vulnerable, especially within South Auckland. Alicia Foon has more. A beloved father, husband, brother and friend, Fa'anana Efeso Collins leaves behind a strong legacy of service as someone whose mission was helping the poor. Even until the end, when he collapsed during a charity run, fundraising for clean drinking water to help children in the Pacific, a cause his colleagues say was close to his heart. Health leader Sir Colin Tukwitonga says his death has sent shockwaves across the region, especially in the heart of South Auckland, where he spent most of his time serving others. Shocking is an understatement. Efeso's friend pursuing the same, on the same mission as the rest of us, small group of us, a good man, good uh, community values, is just absolutely devastating for his family, for the Pacific uh, community, for New Zealand and beyond, I guess. It's just absolutely shocking. He was elected as the first Polynesian president of the Auckland University Students Association in the late 1990s, was a youth worker and became an Auckland councillor for the Monaco Ward and chair of the Otara Papatoitoi local board for three terms from 2016 to 2022. National candidate and longtime friend Fonote Agnes Lohini says he was a very special person and longtime friend. She says he was not only an advocate, but also a man of action. Very fierce and fearless voice for for the poor. You know, it's quite fitting that he spoke about that in his maiden speech not too long ago. He's actually been in the political arena for many, many, many years, and he had a real big heart of service. He was a member and supporter of the Labour Party for many years and ran for Auckland Mayor in 2022 with the endorsement of both Labour and the Greens before standing for the Greens in last year's election for the Panmure Otahuhu electorate. She shared her most recent memory with him when he was inducted into Parliament just last week. It was really good to connect with him. We had a little laugh. 
always a funny guy. You know, he'd always make me laugh. He was just catching me up on his wife and his daughters. That was it. That was for him being a, a husband and a father. Former Minister for Pacific Peoples Albito William Seal says the loss is being felt across the region. His profile reached the four corners of the Pacific region. He was getting support from overseas when he ran for me, I think. He broke through that feeling and gave everybody the belief, hey, anybody can achieve the highest office in New Zealand society. Even though he didn't win it, the fact that he was able to stand for it and get endorsement from major political parties and other organisations made everybody hopeful of, of the future. Albito says Fa'anana was always speaking truth to power. I recall when he became a Auckland City Council on the night of his uh, swearing in, he confronted racism and discrimination in the council. And I think he made everybody feel uncomfortable, made everybody sit up and reflect on their behaviours. I think he was fearless. It woke everybody up. It enabled the next generation to build some confidence in who they were. Tonga's princess also paid tribute online, saying, quote, It was no mystery to any of us in the islands how loved he was by many of our Pacifica community in New Zealand, unquote. For Anana Efeso Collins will be remembered as a pillar for many and bridge for Pacifica and Balangi. His friends and colleagues say their thoughts are with his family, wife and children. They say Fa Anana's legacy will live on. That was Alicia Foon with that story. You can also listen to the full interview of Lydia Lewis speaking with Fa Anana on our website at rnzi.com. Emanuela Malanga Fa Anana. Ele ngalu lautsa utsua itangata uma o Aotearoa New Zealand. Palau's president wants Washington to listen up and push through its compact of free association funding with greater pace. Sarangal Whips Jr. says the situation is so dire, every facet of society is impacted. They can't hire police or teachers as they plunge deeper into debt. He told Lydia Laws he's ruled out entertaining establishing diplomatic ties with China, despite the dire situation his country's in financially. The uh, compacts of free association really define a special relationship between the the compact states and the United States. We uh, allow the United States denial rights. We allow them to have bases on our islands if needed, like in in Palau's case, uh, they're uh, building over-the-horizon radar. Construction has begun on that. And, of course, access to our ports and airports jointly use them together. This is important for, I think, defending freedom and keeping a free and open Indo-Pacific. And we understand our role as partners in this. And so the compacts were designed that, in our case, have reviews. So we had just completed review and uh, concluded an agreement in May of last year. That's important because one of the important parts of that was that we needed to conclude it quickly so that we could get in the U.S. budget cycle. Unfortunately, as you know, October 1st came, and that didn't happen. We're on uh, continuing uh, budget cycles, which for Palau means that we don't get really needed funding to help us really build the economic resilience that we need. Palau has suffered from COVID. We lost all our tourist 
and then has slowly rebuilt back. But we've been basically living off loans and continue to add on more debt. This round of funding was designed to help us stop taking on more debt and then a solid foundation and help us pay down some of that, that debt and also address, you know, we're all challenged with inflation and address critical things like hiring more teachers, police officers, and getting people to earn a decent living so they can continue to stay in Palau and not continue to migrate out. Uh, Palau, since the beginning of the compact, uh, everybody leaves to America because of the lack of opportunities at home. For us, financially, the first year, I mean, this October 1st, we were expecting $90 million. Of course, there's zero. That uh, 50 of that was going to go into a trust fund, but still the 40 million was critical. It was for infrastructure. It was for paying down loans and also some budgetary support. And any a continued delay just pushes, pushes us deeper into debt and probably more importantly, erodes on the, on the confidence and the trust that the people have in the agreement that we signed. And I think that's really the key is we've uh, let the public know that from the beginning that there's challenges in Washington. Uh, this is the democratic system, democratic process at work. But we are hopeful that things will, will get done soon. I've met with uh, numerous Republicans, numerous Democrats in the House and in the Senate. We have support from both sides. It's just that somehow we get lost in the riffraff and we're hoping, we're still hopeful that something's going to get done soon. But you know how, how things sometimes work. Not, not as quickly as we want. <laughs> what are Palau's debt levels at right now? If you add up all our debt, it's about equal to our GDP. It's between 200 to 300 million. Okay, and I spoke with the Federated States of Micronesia's president back at Perth, and he said that, you know, they're facing a fiscal cliff, essentially, and that was a few months back. How would you describe the situation for Palau? We're in the same boat. Now, I would have to say that maybe FSM is a little better than than us. They have a, a continuing budget resolution. I mean, the continuing budget for the United States allows them to get funding every year at the level that they were getting it before. So they're maybe in a little better position than us, where ours is because we didn't get anything last year or we only got $2 million, you can see there's a huge gap for Palau because just the way our, our compacts were structured differently. But we all face the same problem. A whole generation of native birds have been given a second chance at life thanks to a local eco-centre in the Cook Islands. Gale force winds of up to 90 kilometres per hour caused by a recent string of cyclones knocked baby birds from their perches, leaving them helpless and at risk. Tiana Haxton reached out to Stephanie Jensen of the Discover Wildlife Eco-Centre to hear what they're doing to save the poor chicks. There are a, a type of bird here called a kukaya or a white tern and they're very vulnerable to strong winds when they're, uh, when they're very young. Uh, they're hatched onto a branch rather than a nest and they can get blown out of, their, out of their trees very easily. And often these trees have got very high branches so it's not possible to actually put them back into the tree for them to feed. Uh, so as predicted, we've uh, ended up having an influx of young birds 
So, yes, uh, very active at the moment with our fishing to try and uh, catch enough little fish for these birds. They're all doing very well, those that have got we've got there, and uh, they're very, very cute. <laughs> How do you care for these baby birds that have been uh, brought in? Like, what do you actually have to do? Right, so, yeah, we've got, we've got a two-phase sort of operation, or three-phase, really. So the first phase is to get them into terrarium and teach them to feed from the hand. Once they're hand feeding, if they're large enough, then we then transfer them down to the back where we've got an aviary, put them in there. Um, when they are ready to be released, we've got um, an outdoor exhibit area. We pop them on the gate and we feed them off the gate. And generally they'll stay there for a couple of hours looking around themselves and then they take off on flight. And most of the time they come back and we feed them up on the gate again. It's not uncommon for me to be driving in in the morning and having one or two birds following my truck in, <laughs> fluttering in front of my face, telling me to hurry up and go and get their feed. That lasts for about a month, and then by that stage they start coming less and less and they, uh, as they assimilate into the local bird population, and then we don't see them again. So it's actually quite a nice... Uh, way to send them off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess I'm a question always to ask is, you know, why is it actually important to rescue these birds and uh, get them back up on their feet again or back up on their wings again? Uh, well, we don't have a lot of native birds here in Rarotonga due to the introduction of minor birds in the 70s. Um, to try and eradicate these coconut beetles, they brought in minor birds, so the poor Local population of birds has been depleted. Uh, there's not a lot of our indigenous birds here on the island. The kakaia seem to be able to manage somehow, and um, so we've got a fairly good population of them. But in those strong ones, we can lose a whole generation of kakaia off those branches. Some people will um, will find them and try and rear them themselves, which is fine, and we're more than happy to give advice on that. But if they're struggling, they can always bring them into us. What is your message to the community, uh, especially after these high winds? Uh, have a walk. Go for a walk and be intentional. Look for these birds. I also put it out on social media to be actively looking for these chicks lost and unable to fend for themselves. We've got lots of cats around the island, the dogs that will take advantage of them. So get them up off the ground and get them into us and we'll look after them for you. A Refugee Action Coalition advocate says around 40 asylum seekers that arrived on Australian shores by boat have been taken to Nauru for offshore processing. Ian Rintoul says three boats landed on the Western Australian coast at the weekend, with some finding an indigenous settlement which welcomed and looked after the refugees before they were detained by border forces and taken to Nauru. He told Lydia Lewis the situation is shameful. Well, there's about 40 people that arrived in two groups of uh, two groups over the over the weekend in uh, in Western Australia. They've now all been flown from uh, Western Australia to Nauru, uh, and it seems like all of them are uh, Pakistanis or Bangladeshis. We suspect that means Rohingya rather than uh, Bangladeshis. Uh, so it looks like there were Rohingyans and you know Pakistanis, and uh, so they're now they're now all in Nauru. And what are the circumstances of their arrival? I understand some of them were found or were seen at the settlement after arriving. Tell me more about that. 
That's that's right. Well, there's been there's been three uh, boats now that have actually landed on the Western Australian coast, and uh, so and that the refugees have actually disembarked uh, quite close to Broome. The last two groupings were a little bit north of Broome, but um, you know close enough to find um, you know an, an, an indigenous settlement just north of Broome. Uh, so they were you know welcomed and looked after in the in the settlement when they uh, you know arrived there, and then uh, subsequently border force you know were notified, and you know then you know so they they detained them, uh, you know questioned them, interviewed them, and then finally arranged for you know a plane to come to and pick them up from Broome to take them to Nauru. And what what's the difference between being welcomed and looked after in a settlement in Australia, and then what they're about to experience uh, in Nauru? Uh, well, look, I think it's it just a, it's a stark difference, I think, between uh, the response of the Australian community and perhaps Indigenous people in uh, in particular who, you know, sympathise with, uh, you know, other people who are in such, you know, dire circumstances. And I think that's historically been the case uh, in Australia. There's always been sympathy with the Aboriginal community with, you know, refugees who are um, arriving, you know, by boat. Uh, they'll sometimes make the point about the, you know, the boat arrivals in 1788 uh, took their land away. The boat arrivals that are coming in 2024 are being imprisoned like, you know, like they, they are. So they see a very common, you know, connection between, you know, the way their dispossession, if you like, historical dispossession and the mistreatment of refugees who arrive by boat. Um, but the consequences now look a very different. The Australian government, uh, even though it's the Labor government, they're, 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 they maintain Operation Sovereign Borders, every aspect of, you know, refugee uh, mistreatment uh, that we uh, came, came to know so well under the Morrison government is simply being repeated by, you know, the Albanese you know, Labor government. Uh, so the boat turnarounds, uh, the you know, off, offshore you know, detention, uh, indefinite detention, the refusal to allow refugees to resettle in Australia, all that is uh, still the suite of, of policies from the Albanese government just, just, just as it was under the uh, you know, previous uh, Liberal government. Have lessons been learnt from the decades-long fight that you've been working on? Do you have hope that these refugees will be treated any differently from the refugees that were held on Nauru for so many years previously? There's no reason to believe that they will be treated any you know any differently. There are still no resettlement arrangements for any refugees that are taken uh, to Nauru. Um, as we know, uh, the Labor government bought people who had that, that, that in, when they were elected uh, bought uh, bought people from Nauru who had been on Nauru for uh, what was it yeah, 13, 13 years at the time. Um, so. The, the Labor government has got no different policies for the uh, treatment of these of the people that they're actually sending to Nauru. So there's no resettlement arrangements, uh, not with New Zealand, not with Canada, not with the US, with no one. So there is a prospect that uh, in 10 years' time, 12 years' time, the people who the Labor government has sent to Nauru are still going to be the, be there in very, very similar circumstances uh, to uh, the conditions in Nauru that prevailed for since uh, well since 2013 under the you know, previous uh, you know, Liberal governments. Um, one of the things which concerns us very much at the moment is that uh, so far the people who have been detained in Nauru are being held in communicado in what's called RPC-1, which is the big administrative uh, area. Um, that administrative area does not have uh, mobile phone uh, connectivity. Uh, so even if people had mobile phones, they're not able to be used 
inside that uh, that particular RPC1 inside that particular compound. So there's been very well. There's been no contact uh, with um, you know, people who have been uh, sent to Nauru under the you know, under the Labor government. So we've got a very little idea of actually how they are being treated. Uh, what we do know is that eight people uh, who have been sent to Nauru have been returned. They say voluntarily uh, to Sri Lanka, but. We've got no indication at all that the, there is proper refugee processing, that they're getting you know proper advice, proper advice and uh, legal support or any kinds of community support because they are being held in communicado in Nauru. Can you just explain to our listeners what that journey would have been like from Sri Lanka by boat and how desperate someone's situation would need to be to even contemplate making that journey? Well, some of the people have come from Sri Lanka. The last two lots of people are Rohingyas and uh, and uh, you know Pakistanis. Um, but whether it's whether they're coming from Sri Lanka or whether they've come from you know uh, Bangladesh or Pakistan, it, it it does involve. For some, it will it will have been a, a plane trip to, to, to Kuala Lumpur. Others may have you know gone by gone by boat to Kuala Lumpur or to by boat to um, you know to Jakarta. Uh, some uh, Pakistanis may have been able to fly, you know, directly uh, to Jakarta. Uh, but the, we know one of the boats from you know, from Indonesia to Australia took five days uh, to arrive at Broome. Uh, so it's five days of uncertainty uh, at sea. But I think the fundamental problem, the question, is really what is ha- actually happening in Bangladesh and Pakistan or Sri Lanka, for that matter, which which creates refugees. And whether you're talking about Sri Lanka where the oppression of the Tamils is still a, a huge problem, where their, where their land is still occupied, where the Rajapaksha regime still has a hold on, on Sri Lanka. You're talking about, talking about the situation in Bangladesh and the Rohingyas who have been displaced from Myanmar, uh, appalling circumstances in their refugee camps there. You might have seen the news there were 7,000 people uh, homes were, were burnt in uh, in Cox's Bazaar, you know, late last year. We've seen the exodus of boats uh, that have attempted to get to uh, Malaysia and Thailand and and Indonesia from the Rohingyas who are coming from uh, you know Bangla, you know Bangladesh, trying to flee the circumstances in those refugee camps or the circumstances of uh, you know being. Uh, you know, ethnically cleansed out of out of Myanmar and Pakistan, the situation has deteriorated in Pakistan, particularly in Parichina, which is on the border with Afghanistan. All this information about what is actually happening is known to the Australian government, uh, but they will still take no proactive uh, action uh, to defend the human rights of people either in their home countries or in the refugee camps that they're displaced. What's worse? is that they'll do nothing about the conditions in Indonesia. And people arrive in Indonesia, refugees who arrive in Indonesia now get no support from the UNHCR or, or IOM. And I think that's why we are likely to see more people attempting to get from Indonesia you know, to Australia, because the Australian government um, won't provide the funds for IOM or UNHCR to support refugees in Indonesia, and nor will they resettle refugees out of Indonesia. So there is... You know, around 14,000 refugees who are in Indonesia who have got nowhere to go. Um, they get slowly, you know, some some get slowly uh, accepted into uh, Canada and the US and a little bit into New Zealand, particularly Afghans, but none of them, you know, come, you know, come to Australia. And um, as the 
you know, biggest country in the in the Southeast Asia, certainly in terms of refugee you know, resettlement, for the Labor government to maintain a ban on accepting refugees from Indonesia is just is uh, you know shameful. Thank you so much for your time, Ian, and keep in touch um, regarding this okay. situation. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, so far, so far.